that's the big step that kind of got us onto this series because even if we don't feel like we have the right to like, enforce the Ten Commandments on everybody else, we kind of feel like they should be the center of you know, enforceable expectations within the church. We Christians wouldn't hesitate to say we're expecting them to be the Ten Commandments. And yet we still have that problem of coveting. Like, how do we crack down? Like, we don't want to crack down. Uh, well, today, as we remix and kind of dig underneath 
for the hidden truths of the Ten Commandments. We're going to go a little different direction. Um, and as we so often do here, we're probably going to create more questions than we answer. Um, we love the word tension here. To know two things are true, even though they sometimes feel mutually exclusive, rather than just taking one and ignoring the other for the simplicity of it. Um, we choose to try to hold on to both and try to live in the tension that that creates. Um, and so if, if that's not your favorite part of being here, probably not going to like today at all. So, um, so for me, the tension really shows up in the book of Acts. Um, one of the first things that this brand spanking new church embrace was giving. And the room goes quiet. Yeah. Oh no, he's going to talk about money. No, I'm not. I promise. Um, but, uh, but, uh, let me get the plate. We're going to do that. Um, <laughs> honestly, from the, <laughs> from the very, very beginning, people in the, in the early church shared what they had. Um, people who had a lot even sold some of what they had so they could share it. So they could give to the church and, and take care of those in need. It's mentioned several times in the book of Acts and it uh, became such a regular thing that the very first kind of hired staff that the church had, kind of the very first paid positions, um, were the people who were oversaw the benevolence program. The people who were literally like the servers in the church cafeteria making sure all the needy got um, food when they came to eat. Uh, but in all the places that talk about sharing, none are clearer than chapter 4. So I'll be reading from Acts chapter 4 if you want to follow along in your own Bible or app. If not, the words will be on the screen. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. But they shared, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. Now, as a good old-fashioned capitalist who grew up in the Cold War, um, I never knew what to do with this story. Um, it was uncomfortable. I'm honest. I've never liked the way Luke told it because it sounds an awful lot like communism to me. I grew up like that is the devil. You don't, you know, um, everyone's sharing equally and almost shunning personal ownership. And, uh, and this is uh, the church that experienced such amazing and wondrous miracles. And every day it seemed like the Lord was confirming his word with signs and wonders. And, and uh, to make it even more complicated, for a lot of years, I attended churches that would use stories like this to leverage this kind of passage to encourage us to give sacrificially, you know, to share everything so that you could have more and it would be yours, you know, you could flourish more. It was almost this weird tension between, you know, look how much they gave and if you really want to have a lot, you have to give. Like, and I was like, I don't think that's why they were giving it. And so this early church was selling things of value so that uh, everyone would have enough, but, um, but I was encouraged to do it so that I could have more. Um, and that never seemed to fit. Uh, to give generously the way the early church did. Um, and I struggled with this uh, because it didn't seem like it fit what was happening in the book of Acts. So not only did I grow up, you know, with this kind of specter of communism looming over everything, 
um, threatening hard work and creativity and innovation, like you need capitalism for those things, and uh, uh, which made the early church seem a little too uncapitalist for my taste. But the expectation I was also um, getting from the church didn't fit. Um, it felt like they had turned giving into something capitalist. Really want to receive, you have to give more. Like, and then suddenly that didn't seem like it was happening. So, what I would love to do today is kind of hold that image of the early church sharing everything, selling things of value um, if they needed to, to, to share with those who didn't have enough. Um, this church that didn't even count the things they owned as their own. I'd like to hold that image in one hand as we go back to the Ten Commandments uh, and dive yet again under the surface and see what God has for us. So we're going to start by reading the passage we've been reading this entire series from Exodus 20. Um, then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of dead slavery. You must not have any other gods but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon the children. The entire family is affected. Even so, the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for uh, thousands of generations for those who love me and obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse His name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. You have six days each week ordinary work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among, among you. For six days the Lord made the heavens and earth and sea and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God has given you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male and female servants, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Um, now, the part that I'd love to focus on uh, today is this piece in the middle that we've been a little bit dismissive of. We've been talking about this particular, these verses kind of right in the middle of the commands. Um, as kind of the, the root that every civilization ever discovered has had kind of as their social contract. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal. These, these ones that everybody seems to universally agree are bad. Um, these seem to be the kind of the least common denominator of social order. Uh, it's hard to imagine how life would work if not for these three. I mean, I'm a fairly nice person. I'm, I'm relatively gentle as a human being, and I can almost guarantee there's a few times that the forbidding of murder is the only reason I didn't murder. <laughs> I'm, and I'm a nice guy, and I, you know, and it's not usually even for big things, it's usually someone really, really annoys me, and it, it's probably a good thing that there was a prohibition against murder, because uh, I can guarantee 10, 15 lives have been saved just in my little world by that command. Um, but these are pretty necessary, right? These are important to social order. We have to have these. Um, but just as we're going to dug under the commandment to forbid coveting, to find gratitude, and we dug under the, the commandment to honor father and mother, to find this humility. We even talked about it in terms of, of the Sabbath day. Like, there's nothing more humbling than taking a day off. Because we have this tendency to feel like if I don't work, the whole world might fall apart. 
like, like, what would happen? Like, everything rests on me, you know, and stopping for a day to just go, you know what? Things are going to keep spending if I do nothing. Like, it's a humbling thing. It feels like it's a selfish thing to take a day off from the But usually, we have this tendency to get caught in this, you know, who's going to do this? What's going to happen here? Like, is this stuff just going to magically get done? Somebody has to do it. You know, like, like the whole world hangs on my shoulders. No, that was in my notes. So I'm going to get involved again. Um, <laughs> so these are actually, <laughs> that was awesome. I love that one. Teach him to say amen. That's what I, that's what I mean. Um, so these are so basic that they, they, uh, they seem like, uh, like they have to be there. But let's look underneath them. And this is actually what's underneath them is kind of so rudimentary. We have a tendency to overlook it. Um, because we don't usually articulate it this clearly. But inferred underneath all of these kind of prohibitions is, is a very important principle, and that's the principle of personal possession. Like, it, it's, the, it's the principle of ownership. Um, and let me explain what I mean by that. The only way the statement, thou shalt not steal, can make sense whatsoever is if I'm allowed to own something that you're not allowed to take from me. So underneath this prohibition is this this idea of personal ownership, that something can be mine. And mine to the point that it's not yours. <laughs> and you can't have it because it's mine. Um, the only way that adultery can happen is if my spouse is my spouse and no one else's. Um, that there's this, this, possess, this possessiveness underneath that. And I know that's not very woke to say that you know, marriage is ownership, but my wife has an ownership over me that's important. Other people can't violate that, um, and vice versa. Uh, and, and so that, and likewise, my life is mine. You can't take it. It's not yours to take. It, but I, I, it's not your life. Um, and you can make a great argument that nothing is actually ours. It all belongs to God, and I believe that. But whether you call it stewardship or ownership, um, underneath that is, is that what is mine is mine. What is yours is yours. Um, and that, and that reality is, is inferred underneath these commandments. Um, and that those boundaries are sacred things. That they're important sacred things. In order for there to be a prohibition against murder, theft, and adultery, there has to be an understanding of autonomy. That I am me and you are you. And that those boundaries are God-given and sacred. Uh, and, and so now that this may sound rudimentary, uh, but the funny thing is it's not exactly... Um, understood in the narrative text um, when this list of commands was first given. Um, there wasn't uh, a bunch of fine print explaining this. Uh, in fact, you might say that ownership was something that kind of went without saying. People just kind of understood it. But think about this for a second. Um, God calls one man, Abraham. Um, God then made a series of promises to Abraham's descendants as though they were kind of one unit. Your descendants will be and, and, uh, and Joseph winds up in Egypt, and at the end of his life, he declares that God sent him there to save a people, like it's one unit. You know, you, you sit here for even what God did is to save a people, one unit. Um, God then tells Moses, I heard the cry of my people, like one collective unit, my people. Um, during the plagues, he distinguishes between, and even selectively segregates between, Egyptians and God's people, like they were two collective entities. Um, and then he delivers his people as a single unit. And when 
they were in the wilderness, every time the text talks about it, he says, the people, like it's one unit, cried out against God and Moses. Um, and so, uh, honestly, I don't know that it would have felt that weird um, in the context of the narrative if God had told the Israelites right here at the beginning of their national identity that they were required to share everything equally. I don't think it would have felt that way. He had been treating them like a single unit all along the story. Um, and so by all accounts, uh, he could have said, you are one people. You must share everything. And it, it, it would have fit the narrative. But that's not what he does. Um, right here at the kind of inception of their national social contract, God establishes the whole thing by saying ownership is good. Ownership is a good thing. It's good for you to have something that's yours. We can infer that this means that ambition is a good thing. It's good to, to want to, to, to grow things and have things. It's good to work hard and be innovative and creative and try to succeed so that you can own things that other people aren't allowed to steal. Uh, that's important. And when we do that, God basically says when we do that, we'll set these rules so that as you grow and earn things and, and, and have things, people can't take them from you. It's good to have a spouse. It's good for you to have a spouse. So work on yourself. Become a good person. Offer things to a mate that makes you choosable. You know, somebody would want to be with you and, and, uh, and become a better person so that you can win a mate and no one can take them from you. Um, this is important. Underneath all these prohibitions, murder and steal and, uh, and not to commit adultery is this allowance uh, and almost recommendation to actually build a life, to actually um, grow a life, take responsibility and work hard and build things. In our last series, we talked about the, the cultural mandate from the very beginning of Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and govern it and, uh, and how we uh, kind of believe that God has purpose for humans you know, that, that includes vocation. And even though sin made that much more difficult, that purpose continues. And as God is kind of setting up his economy here in Exodus with the Israelites right off the bat and kind of their first social contract, he does it in such a way that they have motive and incentive to, to fulfill the, the cultural mandate, to go and grow a life and, and, and build a path. So underneath these commands and kind of in the midst of all this collective language about the people of God, we find God protecting the individual, protecting the, the autonomy of the person. Um, you, me, each one of us are free to have stuff and own stuff and, and to be joined to one spouse and, and to, to grow in the security offered by fidelity um, and to be able to live our lives in peace, not constantly looking over our shoulders wondering who's going to murder us. Um, these things are important. And once again, we find... The, the heart of the command, this loving and protective father looking out for his children as he lays down rules and laws for them to follow. Um, but I think the greatest kind of demonstration of this autonomy that is inherent in the Ten Commandments is the fact that God does not just command um, us to respect uh, the autonomy of the others. He actually does it himself. Um, uh, so, we have this tendency think about the Ten Commandments as just the divine law, right? It's just, this is what is expected of humanity. Um, it's, it's what God expects everybody to do. Uh, and, and really, it's just the people of God that choose to do it. Um, but really, this is kind of the, what God expects of everybody. These are the universal laws. Um, and I think that's probably true. Uh, but listen to how God introduces these universal laws 
to his people. This is the chapter right before uh, the Ten Commandments. So this, this is what he says right before the Ten Commandments. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my commandments, you will be my special treasure from among all the people on the earth. For the earth belongs to me, uh, and you will be a kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. So Moses returned to the mountain and called together all the elders and people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded, We will do everything the Lord commands. So Moses brought the answer back to the Lord. So here's the thing we don't think about often. God didn't just command Israel on how they needed to act. He didn't just lay down a universal law um, with big threats of judgment if they broke it. Um, you know, God says, I own the whole planet. It's all mine. So he offered the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. He said, if, if you want to do these things, you'll be my special people, blah, blah, blah. It was an offer. It wasn't a, hey, this is what you have to do. This is, this is what's expected of you. He said, hey, if you want to be my special people, if you want to be, you know, my holy nation, there's a certain way to do that. Yeah. So all the thou shalts and thou shalt nots are not being imposed on Israel by a domineering God who's not only jealous but vindictive as so many atheists kind of try to hurl at God's character. If you want the, the kind of ultimate display of respect for autonomy of the individual, it's right here. Not only does God command his people to respect the personal property of others, but he being God and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good, He doesn't even like, overstep that autonomy uh, when it comes to the law. God offers His law. And Moses carries His message to the people and, the, and Israel does not hesitate to say, we will do it. We want this. We're in. And that is going to sound crazy at times because we get all tripped up in, in the complexity of the law and the animal sacrifices and how complicated the whole thing seems to be and how really when you read it, I don't know how they ever thought they were going to do all this. Um, but we have to remember that in that day, most of the things being outlined in the Torah were already in existence in the kind of Mesopotamian paganism. Um, for the most part, there's nothing new in the Torah that wasn't already happening, other than maybe the Jewish festivals that were set to, to certain times of the year. The animal sacrifices and some of the prohibitions, the cleansing rituals, those all existed in ancient paganism. Um, uh, but that what made Judaism stand out and different was that in all those other religions, they had no idea why they were doing them or when they had done enough of them. There was no, you just served these kind of arbitrary gods that ran everything, and sometimes you made them mad, and you wouldn't have any crops, and so you would offer sacrifices hoping to make them happy, and you never really knew if you did or not, other than the crops were sometimes, you'd have a child die. And so you would run out to make sacrifices to the gods, hoping that you somehow appeased them. And it was a, it was a very superstitious and, and fearful way to live. And along comes this self-disclosing God who says, Do you want to know how to please me? I will tell you. I'll lay it out for you so that you never have to wonder. You know when, you're, when, you're, when you've done enough. You know when I'm pleased. You know when I'm not pleased. And, and so, of course, the Israelites, being in this coming out of this Egyptian thing where you were constantly afraid of the gods 
to have a God who would come and say, well, I'll tell you exactly who I am. I will disclose myself to you in a way that you know. That sounded like a grace. That's why they were so anxious to go, we are in. We will do everything. It would have been exciting to know what makes the gods happy or God happy and not happy. And so, um, so they jump in. Um, uh, and this is what Brett, <laughs> talking to Brett last night, he's like, there's nothing worse than when I'm looking at your notes going, I don't know where it is. Where's, oh man, he's off now. Yeah. <laughs> so as we've been remixing these commandments, Brett's like, got it! I'm back on. And we find underneath them these protections against the, the poison of coveting and because it's bad for our souls and, and the advice to be humble because it's good for our success um, as we honor those who know more than us. It's important to note that God didn't actually impose these commandments on his people. He offered them as a grace. Um, and I think this, more than anything else, is where God starts to look less like this Old Testament deity that we sometimes picture and more like the loving Father that we're more used to uh, in the story of Jesus. Several months ago, uh, one of my sons was talking to me about some kind of life decision he was making. I didn't agree with him. Um, he's an adult, and I uh, felt pretty honored that he even wanted to talk to me uh, and include me in some of this, but I didn't agree with the decision, and I told him so. And uh, I told him I loved him, and I wouldn't stop loving him no matter what he decided, but uh, I didn't agree with the direction he was going, and, and, and he was kind of upset by that, you know, and I uh, I wound up telling him, you know, that his life is his life, and, and I would never presume to tell him what to do with it. Um, I actually wanted him to choose for himself how he should live, and, uh, and, and I actually went on to tell him that I will most likely always find something I don't like about your life. He was living with a cat. He was living with a cat at the time. I was like, I don't agree with that. Cats are awful. Like, there's always going to be something I disagree with. Like. Uh, I just lost half the cat owners in the church. Um, my main point was that, you know, as strong as my opinions are, what I really wanted was his autonomy. I was like, I'm never going to change my opinions. Like, I'm, I'm going to want for you what I want for you, but what I really want for you is to take ownership of your life and, and, and build something. That's super important to me. But so for me, this is kind of a big deal to remember that God didn't force the Israelites to obey his rules. Um, as much as, as we might try to kind of cram down that down people's throats, God didn't go that route. He said, if you want to be my special people, if you want to be my set apart people, if you want to be my holy people, the entire world are my people, but if you want to be my people, here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. For me, that's quite a bit different than the way we tend to think about the commandments at times. Now, why is this so important? The personal autonomy and responsibility are, are so basic of a concept that God doesn't even really articulate it. He puts it underneath the forbidding to steal and kill and commit adultery. Um, uh, it's that rudimentary. Why am I spending so much time drawing it out? And here's when we double back to the book of Acts. Um, all the believers were united in one heart and one mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. 
There were no needy people among them because those who owned land and houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. You know what makes this passage so beautiful? It's the fact that they didn't have to do any of this. See, if this was just a New Testament economy, some form of communalism, then this passage would be about obedience. It would be about them just obeying what God told them to do. But that's not what's happening here. Going all the way back to Exodus 20, these people were allowed to have their own property. There's so much that no one could feel it. It was theirs. In fact, in the very, very next chapter of Acts, a, a couple lied to make themselves sound more spiritual than they really were. Anybody ever done that? They sold some land, which was fine, and they gave part of it, which was fine, but they kind of wanted to give the image that they were they were more giving than they really were. There was other people giving a lot. They wanted to look like that, so they, they said they were giving all of it, but they didn't really give all of it. They just, they just wanted to look more spiritual than they really were. They wanted to, you know, put on the praise of Jesus, the Lord's mighty face, before they walked into church. We've all done it. We screamed at each other in the parking lot, and we pull in and praise God. That's all they were doing, and, and and before the Holy Spirit steps in to, to, to address the situation, Peter tells Ananias, the prophets were his. He could have done whatever he wanted with it. Peter totally respected the autonomy of Ananias, and this was your property. You didn't have to sell anything. What is so amazing about the early church is not just that they gave it, they didn't have to give it, but they did They, they, they were given uh, the autonomy to have their own things, to handle their own finances in whatever way they saw fit. And they chose generosity. The thing I love so much about the autonomy offered by the commandments is the fact that autonomy highlights real love and real sacrifice and real generosity. Because you are not allowed to take what's mine. You have zero claims on it. So it's a beautiful thing when I share it with you. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing when I share it with you. Because otherwise, you can't take it. My wife has every right to lay claims to my time. I'm hers. She has ownership of my schedule. Because when I meet with people and I do counseling and I, uh, I, I try to be present to our people when they're in need, my wife is generously lending. She doesn't have to do that. She doesn't have to, to, to sacrifice, but she does it lovingly because she loves people. And she wants me to be pleasant to people. So she, she, she gives of my time. Even when we talk about money around here, I think it's, it's beautiful. I, I'm never very comfortable talking about money. <laughs> we talk about this. I'm not very comfortable talking about money, so let's talk about money. No. Um, I've seen a lot of abuse around money in the church, so I'm, I don't talk about it much, but I'm, because of that, I am blown away by the generosity of our people. If, if you give nothing financially here at, at Open Table, you'll never be made to feel guilty about it. We don't really talk about it. Which means, those who give do it just because they're being generous. Like, I don't, I don't like, make people feel guilty. I don't leverage things. I don't, like, beg or pass and repass the plate. We don't I don't sit here and make a strong biblical case for if you want to have a huge harvest, I don't do that. 
which is, makes it amazing how much you guys give. It's, it's unbelievable. Like, it's one of those things where I want to write a book. Like, if you really want to get people to give, stop talking about it. Because you guys are incredible. And the, generation, the generosity is just um, beautiful because we're not twisting arms to give it. Like, that's my favorite part about being like a come-as-you-are church. It's not just because I like ragamuffins, although I do kind of like ragamuffins. But the, the reason I love uh, people who don't really know how to do church or speak Christianese, um, you know, the type of people who might use words that we really don't usually hear in church. I'm pretty good with those words. The reason I love doing church with people who are real is because when God starts to change their lives, you know it's real. You know it's the real deal. When, when, when you're at church and there is simply no social capital in kind of acting more spiritual than you are, and people start to figure that out, that there's just no reason to be fake, and so they start to come, you know, they sort of realize it's kind of exhausting putting up a fake front, so they drop it. Um, and start just really coming as they are, then real change becomes apparent, and it's a beautiful thing because you're not forcing it, you're not asking for it, you're not twisting arms to get it, you're not like holding up this behavioral expectation that people can can fake. When you give people real autonomy to be themselves, you find something very beautiful in, in watching God change their lives. So I find something really powerful in the fact that God offered. His commandments to His people. And then once, with their own agency, they accepted it. He gave commands that would that would further protect that autonomy. That, that, that would protect the individual. But to the human heart, I think the most beautiful thing about this idea of, of agency and autonomy, at least in my opinion, is the fact that it applies to God as well. I think it's really good for us to remember that God does not have to love you. Autonomy, free will, agency was never one of these kind of ginormous topics. I kind of laughed at myself when I said that on the right like, Oh yeah, just a quick sermon on free will. Like, like all the theologians throughout history have not written volumes on this topic. I'm going to do it in 40 minutes. <laughs> that, that was a joke. I'm going to 40 minutes. Whatever, <laughs> whatever word you want to use to talk about this, doesn't just apply to humans. I hear all the time that God has to do this or has to do that because of His character, because of a covenant, because His word says so, and He can never lie. And those things are probably all true. But I think it it really does our soul good to know that that God loves you because He loves you, not because He has to love you. God is crazy, kind of out of His gourd, in love with us just because He is. Yeah, you, we probably aren't worth it. We probably aren't worthy of, of that love, but it doesn't change the fact that He just loves us. He just loves us. In fact, I don't believe Jesus had to come and save us. It wasn't like God was lonely. He's a perfect community in and of Himself. He didn't mean anything. Yet Jesus, with full agency and autonomy, chose, chose to step out of heaven and descend down to save you and me. We're not part of a religion you join. This is a relationship we participate in between two distinct individuals who choose to do life together, you and Jesus. 
that relationship changes us. I think that is what changes us. I know I've mentioned this a lot, but I make my bed now. I make my bed. There's only one reason I do it, because it still doesn't make sense to me. We're going to get back in this in like 12 hours. Does it make any sense to make it? But I've spent almost 30 years now doing life with Esther. She never commanded me to make the bed. She just likes to have it made, and it's rubbed off on me. And I now don't feel like I'm starting my day well if I don't make the bed first. In fact, she not only hasn't commanded it, I should probably rather I didn't do it. She does it better. She'd probably rather I just let her do it, but I feel better now. It, it somehow just doing life with her has changed me. I feel like I can start my day well. I pick up the room and make the bed. It's 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 changed the way I do life without having to be commanded to do it. I think this is how Jesus changes us. We spend time with Him. We spend time in His Word, learning about how He does stuff and how He thinks and how He acts. The more time we spend, the more we notice ourselves wanting to do those same things. Little changes start to happen, and we barely even notice they're happening, and they don't feel like we're like, making this change. It feels like we're just becoming more like the one we spend time with. Find ourselves wanting to make Jesus happy. In fact, I, I don't just make the bed now, I clean the kitchen. about it now. Like, my kids have this ridiculous habit of coming in like late after you've cleaned up for dinner to make a nice snack and leave the junk everywhere. So I've kind of made this habit of, you know, of going in there like the last thing before I get in bed and re-cleaning up everything and putting it away um, and, and getting it kind of cleaned back to, uh, to, to a, a good thing. And I only have one thing in mind the whole time I do it, and that's imagining Esther getting up and first view of the kitchen being clean. Like it's something that gives her peace. Like she doesn't have to start her day by picking up dishes. I even go and I stand at the door and I look at the stupid like this Because I want her first view of the morning to be this, this clean kitchen. But she's never asked me to do this. She's never begged me to do it. I just want it. I know it makes her happy. I know it's a silly, easy way to make her happy. So I get up, take it about 10 minutes to say, because look, look at it, make sure I got it. And the whole time I'm just, I mean, picturing her walking in and just feeling good. I just know it'll make her smile. So to me, that's what following Jesus is like. It's not white knuckling obedience. Like, it's not a list of rules that we, we hammer down. It's a relationship. And it deepens and hopefully changes us to be more like the one we're so how do we respond to this? Uh, I've grown through this series to look at the Ten Commandments differently. Most of us have handed an understanding of God that goes something like, here's the standard of righteousness, pass, fail, fail as you burn. And we all fail, but God has come on a rescue mission to metaphor the picture is actually covered mostly accurate, strictly speaking. But it's not really how it plays out in the day of God saves the people from slavery. It's a beautiful rescue story. And once the dust settles, it's like a, a wonderful story where it poses to the people. If you want to be mine, yeah. 